morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 17, because we're starting a new series in 1 Thessalonians. We are starting a new series today in 1 Thessalonians. Our theme through the book is Ordinary People, Much Affliction, Great Joy, Contagious Faith. But we want to this morning look at the planting of this church in Acts chapter 17. We will venture over to 1 Thessalonians um, towards the end here, and then we'll be in 1 Thessalonians for several weeks. Uh, I did want to start by just uh, thanking uh, so many of you who uh, pray for your pastors um, you know, coming the week before Easter is quite, quite a challenge. Uh, fractured my wrist on Monday, coming up before Easter. And uh, when I went to the doctor that night, to the urgent care doctor, I didn't think it was broken, but turns out or fractured it was. And uh, he used the phrase, I don't think you need surgery. <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> And so he said, we'll pass this up the chain. And unfortunately, I didn't, but I was trying to, you know, uh, text Rich that night saying, uh, just so you know. <laughs> and, uh, and Rich and Michelle were going through at the same time. Their transmission on their van went out, which that was not good, full rebuild there. And so they were, you know, there was just all this stuff going up. And I just kept thinking, must be a special Easter coming up if all this is going on. Uh, but we kept going, and, and it's just, uh, everything is fine. I mean, I'm preaching with one arm tied behind my back, but um, everything's just different. I don't usually use the podium all the time. My notes are different. And uh, as we were preparing for this message, I had some maps I wanted to use, and, and David just wisely came in the sanctuary to see what they look like. And he said, I really think you should use the laser pointer, so maybe you should do the clicker. And I said, sure, why not add one more thing that I don't <laughs> normally do? So... Uh, the PowerPoint will be behind, and hopefully I'll be able to tell by your lost faces that I'm missing something. Um, but we're starting this, this new series on 1 Thessalonians, and this morning we want to look at the beginnings of this church in, again, Acts chapter 17. And what I want to do is we want to look at the culture in 1 Thessalonians, uh, in, in Thessalonica, because that'll help us understand uh, the book and the, the church. But I also want to talk about that's the culture there. That's the culture then. What is the culture that we're dealing with in our church, in the area that we live? So we'll kind of take a little bit of a side uh, rabbit trail there. So we're going to talk about the culture. We're going to talk about the challenges that the church faced and the challenges that we face. And then we're going to look at the church itself. And uh, then and now, I think both those things apply to us. So the culture, the challenge, and the church. Acts chapter 17. Uh, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Aplona, uh, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom on, the, on, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, Jews here is, is a generic term, but as you look at the context, I think what, what Luke is saying here is, is the, the Jews that were kind of in charge, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Jews were jealous, and taking some 
wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So Paul and Silas were staying at Jason's house. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were uh, disrupted when they heard these things. They were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken some money as security from Jason and the rest of Uh, and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, uh, some things that we kind of uh, figure out, this is uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, he goes into Thessalonica. In fact, actually, he's traveling through Asia and God is, is closing doors. He's not able to go through and, and Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come here. And so Paul kind of side skirts Asia, sails across into Macedonia. Uh, this is about the third, fourth city that he visited, Philippi, about the fourth city that he visits. And he's there for a few weeks. He has some converts. And then the city is in an uproar. And they basically sneak out at night. And Paul and Silas are off to the next city. They're in Berea where they get a much better reception. Now, what happens is Paul is traveling as he's going around and he starts thinking about all this stuff that happens in Thessalonica. He sends some people back there to check on what's going on. Hey, whatever happened in Thessalonica to Jason and those people? And so he sends them back and they come back and report to Paul that there is a thriving church in Thessalonica. And it's, it's growing, and it's becoming a missional church, and they're sending out missionaries. And Paul is like, wow. And so he writes 1 Thessalonians to encourage them to keep going. He says, I hear some great stuff about you. In fact, my students at Corbin, I make them learn a, a, a phrase for each book of the Bible to kind of tell them the theme. And so 1 Thessalonians' theme is stay on target, right? So Paul's like, good job. Stay on, keep going. That's great. Um, one of the things that just stood out to me is that they keep going. And in verse, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, through much affliction. Well, it's not like things were, you know, because Paul left that things got easier. There's a lot of affliction going on in Thessalonica. In fact, they continue to do that with joy and they become this contagious church. So let's look at the beginnings of this church. And now here's where we're going to see how this works. Um, this is uh, uh, Paul's first missionary journey. And, here's, and there's no map, and I'm kind of a book nerd, and so this isn't going to work out great. There's a great website, and great on your phones. It's called, uh, oh, I had it now. It's uh, viz.bible, V-I-Z.bible. And uh, it has an interactive map of all three of Paul's missionary journeys, and this is what this is a screenshot from. And so just to put this in, whoops, boy, push the wrong button. Put this in general. This is, this is Jerusalem way down here. This is Antioch up here where this church 
that sends missionaries begins. That's where they're first called Christians and sending that. So put this in perspective, from Jerusalem to Antioch is 300 miles. Um, now, remember, these people are walking. There's no Greyhound bus. There's no uh, Uber. There's no trains. There's, you know, no planes. And so to put that in perspective, 300 miles, if you walk an average of 20 miles a day, that's a 15-day walk, Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay? So just this part of the map, that's just a 15-day walk. We'll put that in even more perspective. It's if you and I left today for Ashland, Oregon. Okay? Not, and again, this isn't by the, the crow flies because there's roads and stuff. So it's 300 miles of roads in the same way that if we walked here and got over and walked down I-5 all the way to Ashland, Oregon, and we got to the city center, we'd have to walk about another three or four miles just to kind of round off the whole thing. Okay? So that, that's, that's a distance. So the church here in Antioch, this is about, uh, uh, we would say probably, what did I write down here? About 16 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the first missionary journey goes out, and this is Paul's first journey, okay? Now, just to put that, now, now Paul comes back, and now we're probably almost 19, 20 years away from the resurrection, and Paul goes out on his second mission. Oh, I'm sorry, I had this little, remember the, the Acts, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea? There it is. Samaria? And the ends of the earth. I mean, for a Jewish, for 300 miles, we're pretty much the ends of the earth here, okay? But Paul keeps going. And so here's his second missionary journey. That's incredible. Now, keep in mind, most people never traveled from the village that they grew up in. Jews may have traveled once in their lifetime. Uh, if they were closer, they might have done it every year to Jerusalem. But this is an incredible journey. And so we're going up the upper green line here. This is Paul trying to get through Asia. Things kind of close. He ends up crossing over here, has a vision, transfers over here. Oop, I keep pushing the wrong button. Uh, he is, then this is, he gets a vision. This, now he's over into Macedonia. And then zoom in on Thessalonica. Thessalonica is up here in this water port up here. It has mountains protecting it on this side. And you can't really see it, but there's a road it goes all the way over here. Roads are pretty incredible in ancient times. This was a military road. And from Thessalonica, not only was this a port that you could go everywhere, this goes all the way to the Adriatic Sea. So a pretty incredible journey that Paul is taking in his, I mean, this is just, I mean, you and I don't really think about this, but it was a period of time that people could travel, okay? And people spoke this common language thanks to uh, you know, Rome basically, you know, first Alexander the Great and then Rome taking over everything. And that Paul could do all this travel. I mean, you couldn't even do this today. Some of these areas, this is modern day Turkey. I mean, you have a pretty good passport to get in there. Okay, so this is pretty amazing. Um, and so uh, what was the culture in which uh, Paul was facing? Uh, this is a pre-Christian culture, obviously, right? This is, this is new stuff to the people that are going. He's, I had to, he's reasoning with the Jews that the Messiah has come. He's reasoning with the Greeks that the, the, the Messiah of the Bible was Jesus and that he died and rose again. I'm not there yet. I'm on top of this. I'm on top of it. So a pre-Christian culture, nobody has faith in me, believes in many gods. The individual in a pre-Christian culture, the individual is a victim to fate. And the world is full of irrational spiritual forces. To survive, 
The individual must obey the taboos and the gods uh, through turning to shamans and witch doctors and all this type of stuff or to the, whatever the, the temple is. This, is. this is what Paul faced. He came into a place with these mini gods. Now, you and I don't live in a pre-Christian culture. Our culture is very different. And here's, I want to just share for a minute why some of you are struggling with the gospel. Okay, so uh, this comes from a book, um, uh, Disappearing Church, and uh, James Gleason taught this at the uh, um, CB conference just re- recently. It was just really helpful. Most of us grew up in a Christian culture. Okay, if you're about my age or older, you grew up in a Christian culture. A Christian culture is rooted in the Judeo-Christian ethic. It centers in order. It worships a God. Uh, the whole universe is arranged by God in a rational, sacred order. Um, and so individuals face peace and security and faith by worshiping God and obeying his commands. So basic Christian culture belief is this, that there is a God. Um, or at least a higher order. E- even in a, a Christian co- a culture, we recognize not everybody's that, but, but for a general consensus, the majority people in the culture that we grew up in believed in some sort of higher being. They also believed that there was moral truths. There was right and wrong. And that we need to abide by them to some sort. Okay? They believed in a reality of sin, although they may not use that word, there was a right and wrong. Okay? In a, in a Judeo-Christian culture, there was a general belief in right and wrong. There, most people believed in some sort of afterlife. Now, here's what I want you to hear this morning. And I, we, can, we can debate this, but we're not going to this morning. We don't live in this world anymore. This is not the culture that you're ministering to anymore. We live in a post-Christian culture. Now, a post-Christian culture is very different. A post-Christian culture says you must be true to yourself. Now, it's not saying that you are a god, although you put yourself in that place. You must be true to yourself. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. That's the highest good. And because that's the highest good, you must be free to live in any way you want. Now, the post-Christian culture, because you are the center of that, things like traditions, uh, religious institutions, the church, um, restrict individual freedom. And so because of that, churches and organizations, government, whatever you want to call it, whatever the institution is, they're at best suspect. In most cases, they're just granted, they're just declared evil. They have much more optimistic view in that the world is is getting better. As individual freedoms grow, they would say in a post-Christian culture that the more freedoms we have, the better off we are. And the great monitor of all this is technology. Technology. 
post-Christian culture says you must do what makes you happy. Now, if you don't believe me, here's your assignment. Just watch a couple of afternoon talk shows. Watch three or four of them. I don't think you'll have to watch more than one. Because they will say, hey, if that's what makes you happy. If this is what, then you need to do. That's the post. And you know what? Christian, I'm telling you this because it slipped into our vocabulary as well. So the post-Christian, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Post-Christian culture says, love yourself. And be kind to others. You know, we'll throw that in there. But it's really about yourself. Um, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethnic, this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and ironically should not be tolerated. <laughs> they would say humans are inherently good, that we're born good, and it's just the circumstance, the other things that people do to us that make us bad where uh, Christian culture says what? We were born into sin. Um, and then the last one is, uh, you, only you determine what's right and wrong for you. So external authority is rejected and personal authenticity is praised. Um, let me give you an example of this. Um, when I was in high school, granted I went to a Christian high school, but this was true of friends that didn't go to Christian high schools. Maybe on Monday, I'd be talking to a friend, and he would say, oh, man, I went to a party on Friday night, and I, and I got drunk. I got wasted, whatever, whatever the term was then. And there was a, implied in the conversation was, I did this, and it was wrong, and I feel bad a little bit on Monday morning. That doesn't say that they're not going to do it again next Friday night, but there was an acknowledgment that those weren't some good decisions. Today, on a high school campus, on Monday morning, you will hear high schoolers saying things like, on Friday, I'm going to get wasted. There's no, there's no sense of whether that's right or wrong. It's what they want to do, and that's the plan. So things are totally turned upside down. So you and I were taught to share the gospel with the four spiritual laws, which, you know, you're, you, right? God is good. You are not. Repent. And it doesn't work with that. Those same things don't work today in that context. So culture then and now. Paul went into a pre-Christian culture. You and I grew up in a Christian culture, but we don't live in that culture anymore. We live in a post-Christian culture. Now, there's another part, and we, we just, it just can't really go into this. Uh, I had put a chart up here, but this is not going to help you any. Oh, it's not too bad. Uh, there's, a, there's a form of Gnosticism. You've heard this. This kind of existed when Paul is writing 1 Thessalonians, whether it's the beginning parts of it or whether it's more formed, we don't really know. And Gnosticism in the ancient world had these thoughts, and there's actually a modern Gnosticism that exists in our culture today. Um, and so ancient Gnosticism would say the world is inferior. Contemporary Gnosticism would agree the gospel says creation is good. In ancient Gnosticism, matter is the problem. In contemporary Gnosticism, the mundane. That's, that's what we need to fight against. The mundane is the problem. In the gospel, the problem is sin and rebellion against God. 
In ancient Gnosticism, they would say, you need to escape from the body to a perfect spirit, kind of uh, new ageism. But contemporary Gnosticism says, turn your body into a perfect looking body. (laughs) I can't believe you said that about me, Don. Uh, (laughs) Oh, sorry, good misspelling there that, that Elsie caught and I forgot to correct. Jesus' gift of grace frees us from sin. Uh, look inward to find truth and the God within. Contemporary Gnosticisms look inward to find the real you. And so we're facing this, uh, and there's a whole bunch more of these things, and, and we don't really have time to go into that. Um, but it, it, it's interesting to think about the culture because it's different. And so uh, the city that Paul in, encountered, Thessalonica was, and we'll get back in the text here, was an ethnically diverse city. Paul shows up and he goes straight to the Jewish synagogue because that's where he's comfortable and he reasons with them. But what, what the text says is that, that some Jews believed and then what also? Greeks. There's more than one ethnic group in there. And so it's an ethnically diverse city. And I would say the Macedonians uh, in general, very different than what, you're, what you've got down in Rome and different areas. So it's, it's, it's a multi-ethnic place, plus it's a port, it's this great trading city, and so it's ethnically diverse. And guess what? We live in an ethnically diverse city too. Okay? Um, it, it's for different reasons. Okay? But Intel and Nike and Portland are bringing groups of all different ethnic groups. Okay? We don't see it as much here on this side of town. We do a little bit. Um, but if you go over into the Tannisborn area and into those condos, it's very, very ethnically diverse. Now, it's also a religiously diverse city. Obviously, we already saw that there was Jews. And when we look at the town of Mas- uh, Thessalonica at the time, the area of Macedonia, one author said this, there was a plethora of gods. Okay? I mean, there was, just, there was just all sorts. of There was local gods. There was Greek gods. There was just all sorts of different gods. It was a very religiously diverse city that Paul entered into. And you know what? We live in a religiously diverse city as well. There, there, you are, if you just drive around Hillsborough now, you will see all sorts of different churches that you had never seen before. And if you don't believe me, you can have, here's your, here's your assignment. Okay, go out here, turn right on Grant. Notice what the old Baptist church on the corner of Grant uh, and, and what is that, uh, First Street there is, okay? And then come back up Second Street and just drive down Second Street till it ends and you'll see another diversely uh, different church that you probably had never seen in Hillsborough before. Okay, so right there in this area, we have very religiously diverse uh, this, it was very economically diverse. Now, I don't know who the men of the rabble were, uh, but I'm guessing that wasn't the upper class that they turned to to cause the riot. Very economically diverse. You had uh, seamen that worked there. You had, uh, high, you had these women of, of high standing in Thessalonica. It, it was very economically diverse. And guess what? You and I live in an economically diverse city. Uh, Again, it was culturally diverse. Um, Again, Jews, Greeks, uh, people from all over traveling into this this city for trade. Um, And so is ours, very culturally diverse. 
Um, it's, it was actually politically diverse in some ways. Macedonia, that wasn't a region of its own until Alexander took it over and then it was taken over again by the Romans. Uh, when Alexander died, he broke the areas into, uh, divided it between different generals. Rome brought that back under all one rule. And so you had all sorts of different political thoughts. Even though it was under Roman rule, Jews didn't really recognize Roman rule. Some of the Macedonians didn't really recognize it. And then there was Roman rule. So it was very politically diverse. And guess what? It's becoming less so, but we live in a politically diverse city as well. So Thessalonica wasn't really that different um, than the culture that we live in. So how do we preach, present the gospel in a post-Christian, diverse city like our own? Um, When Paul comes into the city, he takes the gospel... Uh Uh-oh. David, your battery is low. He takes, Paul takes uh, the gospel to the culture. And so what we have here uh, is Paul goes directly to the group. And then what Paul doesn't even, it doesn't even start with Paul leaves. He's run out of town. And then a church forms. Out of the culture comes a church. Now, historically, because we lived in a Judeo-Christian culture, what we did as the church is we just said to the culture, hey, we're like you, only better. So come. But guess what? The culture doesn't want to come to church. They don't want to. And so we have to go back to the original way of sharing the gospel, which is taking it directly to the culture. And that's difficult. And so we have to focus um, on mission, not programs. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have programs in the church, but as a general rule, we had programs in the church because we were trying to get the culture to come into the church, and they did. But today, that's just, that's just not a reality for most people. And so somehow, we have to become missional-minded. And I knew as soon as I used the word missional-minded, some of you would become uncomfortable, and some of you would have no idea what I am saying. So I said, I have to define the term missional. And so I Googled it, and the first one that came up was Wikipedia, which students, by the way, if you use Wikipedia in your reports at school, your teacher will not count that as a source. Okay, I marked my students down for that. Um, but in this case, I'm like, I like Wikipedia. This is, this is general culture defining missional. And their definition was this. Missional living, I don't think I, do I have this? Yeah. Missional living is the adoption of the posture, thinking, behaviors, and practice of a missionary in order to engage others with the gospel message. So if you were to go to a village in a place that had never heard the gospel, you would not build a church and say, come to the church. They would be, why? I don't know if you've ever heard this story of uh, the guy that, that ended up on a deserted island, and he had lived there for like 20 years, not the movie with the, with the ball. Uh, this guy <laughs> ha- had lived on this village, and, and uh, 
he gets picked up and he's finally rescued and there's three huts on the beach. And the guy said, well, tell us about these huts. And he said, well, that hut is, that's my house. That's where I lived. Ah, oh, good job. And he said, well, then what's that hut? He goes, that's my church. Oh, good. That's wonderful. He goes, what's the other hut? He said, I had to leave that church. That's my other church. The idea of the, of the culture, right, is, is of a missionary is not to go build a church and tell people to come to it. The idea of a missionary is to go engage with the culture. And so what they're saying is missional living is starting to think like a missionary. So in our assessment, uh, one of the things that they said is that we should get some, uh, uh, what was the word, coaches. And they, offered, they, they recommended two coaches to us, uh, James Gleason, because he is really understands the culture of Hillsborough. He's done well with that. And the other coach that they recommended was Rod Ragsdale. And you think, well, I'm sorry, but Rod's living in Africa. And, you know, every time he comes, I mean, he's a little odd, right? Sorry, don't tell him I said so. <laughs> why, why, would we, why would Rod be a great coach for First Baptist Church Hillsboro because he's missional. He understands what it means to go into a culture and share Christ with a culture that you don't know. That, that's, that's what we need to do. And so we, we've, we're reaching out to Rod. We're, we're thinking that. So thinking behaviors and practice of a missionary. And that's what we need to do to reach our culture. So we need to take the gospel to our culture. We need to uh, invest in mission, not programs. And third, uh, the way that we do that, what James would say, is that the number one thing that we need to do is we need to find out ways to serve our community, find ways to be serving in our community. If we're going to take the gospel to the culture, we have to find a way to actually get involved in the culture. And here's the problem with the church, and I, I'm guilty of it. Okay, when? What are you doing on Sunday? Well, I'm going to church, and then I'm going to have a meal with some of the people in the church. And then, you know, what are you doing on this night? Well, I have small group with people in the church. And then what are you going to do? Well, I have Bible study with people in the church. And i got to take my kids to the school that is involved with people in the church. And, or whatever, it just all of a sudden, we have no connection to the culture in which we live in. So we have to find ways, we have to reinvent ways to actually engage our culture. And what's the best way to engage our culture? Serve and love them. And so we have to find ways to, to make that connection. Now, Paul did it, um, and, and now we have to find ways to do that. So the challenge then and now. Um, Paul comes in and to Thessalonica and he's upsetting the status quo. It says in verse 6, um, and when they could not find them, they dragged, uh, excuse me, uh, I have the wrong verse there. Uh, verse 3, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's different. And what happens? The Jews are jealous. The Jews are jealous, verse 5. Why? Because you're upsetting the status quo. We were in charge. Now you're trying to make, it's just, Look, when you present the gospel, if you go back and look at that outline that I gave you for a post-Christian culture, when you bring Christ into it, it upsets the status quo. It just will every time. Second, pronouncing Jesus as king. The hardest part of the gospel today is for you and I to say, 
it's not about me. I'm not the center of this universe. That there is a God who is bigger than me, and this book is about him. It's not about me. It deals with me. But I need to pronounce Jesus as king. What do they say? Verse 7. Excuse me. um, Yes, verse 7. And Jason received them, and they were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Look, if we really lived like Jesus was our king, it would upset the political agendas of today. Declaring our need for a savior. He explained why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Why is it necessary? Because you and I are sinners? Because the law doesn't save us? Because we are separated from God? Because Jesus died for our sins? Because he is resurrected and give us new life? Because it was necessary for somebody, God, to provide a way out. So he declares our need for a savior. Most of our culture doesn't think it needs saving. They just need more freedom. Fifth, uh, when I say that, I, I think of, oops, I hit something wrong. Nope. Uh, there we go. When we talk about loving people, What I find as a pastor is that when I say that, one of two things happens. Some of you love people so much that you don't make boundaries for yourself and then your life becomes a mess. And some of you set so many boundaries and stay away from so many things that you actually love people. We need to find a balance of loving people with the right boundaries. That's hard. And so the challenge then and now, I mean, I don't think Paul lived with any boundaries. Okay, it's clear. He is tossed from town to town. He's just going to keep going. But the church that's set up, and as we go into 1 Thessalonians, Paul does set some boundaries. And so we need to see those as we go through uh, the book. So we we looked at the culture, we looked at some of the challenges then and now, and then finally I want to end with a little bit about how what the church looked like. So if you turn over to 1 Thessalonians, basically, again, Paul comes through the city, there's a few converts, uh, things are changing, and, uh, and then what happens is he gets driven out of town, Paul sends somebody back, hey, let's go check on that church there, did anything happen there? Oh, man, there's some great things going on. And so he, he, how did we get there? And I, I'm going to read kind of First uh, Thessalonians, uh, just kind of read through some of the first few verses, uh, and then we'll have to jump around a little bit. Let me just read the first eight verses. It says this. How am I doing on time? Paul, uh, Silas, Lavinius, and Timothy to the church in Thessalonians, uh, to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace Don't worry, we're coming back to chapter one next week, so we're just kind of doing a big overview here. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and your steadfast of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word, what, in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia, listen, and in Achaia. And so it went out beyond that. In verse 8, for not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Ordinary people, much affliction, great joy, contagious faith. The church then and now, uh, preaching with power and conviction. Um, In verse five, Paul says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And so one of the things, and you say, okay, well, that, that's talking about you, Pastor Dave. No, what it was saying about is when we go into the culture and we're loving people, when we share about Christ, we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit and we do it with much conviction. Many years ago, I was uh, home in a, in a morning and I was watching the Today Show. I often watch that in the morning. And uh, Tom... Uh, What's his name? Tom, uh, what's that? No, the, no, no, the actor, uh, anyway, why am I not, why am I coming up with it? Uh, the pilot what movie, what is it? Is it not Tom? Tom Cruise, thank you. I couldn't come up with that. I don't know why. I was, you know, he is into this whole, uh, I forget what church it is, Scientology thing. And so t- Tom Cruise said in this interview, he's, he's, I won't say. He's, he's a different guy. And so he said, Tom Cruise said in this interview, he said, I don't care what the situation is. He said, if I see a, a car accident, he said, I'm, I'm the best person to go help with that car accident because I know the truth. And I went, I think he's a nut. <laughs> but he has more, more conviction than most Christians I know that what he believes moves him to do something about it. And I know so many Christians who are convinced that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but they don't tell anybody about it. Where's our conviction in the truth? And we're afraid of the culture. Our culture says I shouldn't say anything against them. My conviction leads me to do otherwise. So preaching with power and conviction. Second, Uh, receiving the word of of God. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says of the church, and we also thank God uh, constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. that's That's how you and I are to receive the preaching and teaching of God's word. Look, this is, this is, you need to wrestle with this book. If our values at this church says this is our sole authority, and if it is, we should live like that. Third, the, the church, when it received this preaching and, and based that it was God's word, 
Um, third, they begin to imitate good Christian men and women. It says here in, in verse 6, and you became Im- imitators of us. Man, so look, why is that important? Paul went into a culture that was so different than what the Christian culture was. They said, well, how are we supposed to live out the gospel? We're going to look at this in 1 Thessalonians. And so what they did was just start imitating Paul. Not a bad idea. And then as they grew, they became models of Christian behavior to other people. So Rich asked this question this morning. Who are you discipling? Who are you modeling Christian behavior to? And who are you being discipled by? Who are you learning Christian behavior from? Those are great questions to ask. We see that happening in this church. And it should, it happened then, it should be happening now. And increasingly, they were becoming a missional church. This, this gospel just started going forth to where Paul says of this little church in Thessalonica that, that started in, in much affliction, that the teachers were driven out of town. It seems like they were only there for like a month. And, and, and here they're driven out of town. And what does it say? Faith, verse 8, faith and God has gone forth everywhere. That's amazing. They became a missional church. Now, when we talk about the gospel that, that we're founded on, I think there's three aspects to the gospel in your notes. One, it's doctrinal, right? It changes what we believe. There's no doubt, oh, sorry, one more click. Oh, that ends there. I don't know why. Did I really? Eh, I don't know what's going on there. All right, I have a fat thumb, as you know, it's been pointed out. I'm just kidding. It is doctrinal. It changes the way we think. It should. Now, here's the, here is the warning, church. Listen to this very carefully. Those of us who grew up in a Christian culture, who grew up with this kind of general Judeo ethic, there are some really good aspects of that. But it also has blinded some of us to the truths of the gospel because it's not always the same thing. And so doctrine makes us think differently. Um, Our culture changed some things. It defined some things differently. It emphasized some other things, especially economics. But there's other things. So it changes the way we think, and second, it's personal. It changes who we are. The gospel causes us to act differently, to treat people differently. Look, if we're not different in what we believe and how we act, then why in the world would anybody be interested in what's going on here? It should change the way that we act. And then finally, it is missional. It changes what we do. Because of the conviction that we have about Jesus Christ, it literally changes the way that we do life, how we share things. So this is an introduction to the church in Thessalonica. The culture, and our culture, the challenges 
man, it, it faced some challenges. It upset the status quo. It, it puts Jesus as king. It defines good and evil based on God's word. It declares our need for a savior. It, it means us loving God with the right boundaries and loving people with the right boundaries, excuse me. And then the church then and now, we look at that and we go, man, there's some things that we need to make sure that we're applying. So what's the application and action? Sometimes when I hear, when, I, when we talk about missional stuff and reaching our culture, people say, oh, I don't know, we're so small. We have a lot of older people. Um, you know, this isn't the Bible Belt, Dave. We don't live in the South, okay? These things work other places. They don't work here. James can do those things over there because, you know, I don't know why. We're just a small church. No more excuses. Look at this. Ordinary people. That's who we are. Ordinary people. The reason that you and I are sitting here is because ordinary people shared the gospel with somebody else. Because somebody traveled from Jerusalem 300 miles by foot to Antioch, and a church started there. Because Paul left Antioch and traveled even more, hundreds of miles, walking, boat, risking his life to share the gospel. Ordinary people. Second, we really need to understand the culture that we're called to engage. And I, I'm not trying to, I'm not, please don't misunderstand, I'm not being a doomsdayer here. For some of you, that when I said we don't live in a, in a uh, Christian culture anymore, you went, wah, wah. When, how do we get back there? I miss it. Look, that's not what I'm saying. There is a lot of opportunities in a post-Christian culture. I'm, ex I'm excited about the opportunities we have to present the gospel to people who don't know the gospel. And I keep reading this book, and the gospel keeps working. And so, look, know the culture that you're engaged to, to be in and love it. And we as a church and as individuals need to find ways to serve the culture that we're called to engage in. And sometimes that means getting outside our doors, which is really uncomfortable. And sometimes, to be honest with you, really awkward at first. It just is. Some of you haven't been out of the church in years. And you talk church, you smell like church, I mean, your neighbors look at you and they go, church people, right? You show up to serve at the community thing and they're like, oh, look out, the Mormons are here. I mean, that's what they say. That's what they think, okay? And so we need to get into a place to go, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to be a missionary at my workplace. I'm going to be a missionary in my family. I'm going to be a missionary in my neighborhood. I'm going to be a missionary in the town that I live in. And let's embrace it and be effective in it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for this morning. Uh, thank you for an opportunity to dig into your word and to be challenged. Uh, thank you for uh, that we can come here this morning. And uh, Lord, it's not Easter Sunday, but you are still risen. You're still alive. You're still working. New life is still available. The gospel is still true. Your spirit is still powerful. God, we thank you. Nothing has changed. You're still here. You're leading us. You're blessing us. You're healing us. God, we praise you for that. 
So God, may we be faithful in doing what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.